chapter 15. And this is right, Exodus 14 is when the Red Sea is parted and the people pass through. And then after that happened, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord, Yahweh, is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground 
in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, I ask that by a miracle of your Holy Spirit, that this morning we would stand on the shore of the sea. I pray that we would stand on the shore of the sea and that we would see and experience your awesome power and that we would put our trust in your salvation. Please, Holy Spirit, come and anoint me to preach the word of God. And please, Lord, anoint all who hear Lord, that we may receive the word of God for what it really is, not the word of men, but the word of God, which is at work in us believers. In the name of Jesus, the King of kings, I pray this. Amen. Amen. So the song of Moses, it is such a fine song that the saints of God are still singing it in heaven to this day. That is what we learn in Revelation chapter 15. John says, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. They stood beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So I want to look at this uh, basically in two parts. First of all, the story that makes sense of the song, which probably to most is a familiar story. um, But I want to revisit that story and flesh it out a little bit. And then look at the song itself, Moses' deliverance song, and just a few of the key notes in the song. We can't go through everything, but some of the highlights. So first of all, the story that makes sense of the song. The story of Israel in Egypt actually goes all the way back to Genesis 15. It's one of the times that the Lord appeared to Abraham in a vision, and the Lord told Abraham this, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be slaves there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. And just as the Lord said, so it came about. Okay, so later on, you know, Abraham gives birth, uh, Abraham and Sarah, to Isaac, and then Jacob in the next generation, and then you remember the story of Joseph and his brothers, and Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt, and eventually the entire family makes their way to Egypt. And, and by the end of the book of Genesis, 
um, Israel is in the wrong place. Now, we're not in the promised land. We're in Egypt. Okay? And yet, everything is according to plan. It's playing out just the way the Lord said that it would. We shift into the book of Exodus then in chapter 1. The nation of Israel is growing and multiplying and bearing fruit just like God promised. And because of that, they are perceived as a threat by Pharaoh and by Egypt. And so Pharaoh begins to cruelly oppress and enslave the Hebrews. And it actually gets so bad that he begins to kill all of the little Hebrew boys, begins to put them to death. But God, you may remember, rescues Moses miraculously um, and is preparing redemption through this deliverer that he's going to bring, right? Um, and eventually, you know, just kind of fast forward in the story, right? Moses has a few run-ins with the law, and he escapes in 40 years in the wilderness himself, but God brings him back with Aaron, and they go and they confront Pharaoh, right? Let my people go, the Lord says. Let my people go, and Pharaoh refuses. He hardens his heart, and so the Lord brings a series of judgments upon Egypt, judgments upon Egypt's oppression and its injustice, but ultimately, judgments upon Egypt's idolatry. Okay? He brings judgment after judgment upon Egypt, and it is, of course, in the form of plagues, a series of plagues. And the plagues, it's hard for us to think about this well because um, it's almost become a, such a cute children's story that we tell, I think, that we, we have to really work hard to imagine this. But what's actually happening in the story of the plagues is that Yahweh is entering into battle on behalf of this relatively small, oppressed people okay, over against the greatest nation on earth at the time, which is the nation of Egypt. And through plague after plague, Yahweh, the true and living God, he systematically cripples the economy of the greatest nation on earth, while at the same time showing up the unreality of the gods of Egypt, because a nation's economy and its gods or God are always bound up together. Okay? And so the Lord brings judgment after judgment after judgment upon Egypt. But at the same time, the plagues are not only or merely a judgment, they're also a summons to Egypt to repent. Okay? When God sends judgment, when God sends plague, it's always also a call to reality. It's a summons to wake up and to turn to the Lord. But Pharaoh refuses again and again to humble himself before Yahweh. The more Egypt suffers devastation and, the, and loss, the more Pharaoh insists on making Egypt great again. He hardens his heart against the Lord. And so by the time we get to Exodus 11 and 12, we've reached the point of no return, and the God of justice threatens one final plague. You may remember that Exodus 1 started with Pharaoh killing all of the Hebrew boys, right? And now the Lord has give, given chance after chance after chance after chance to repent, 
Pharaoh's heart in his heart, and so now the Lord says, okay, this is what's going to happen. I am going to send a destroying angel into Egypt, and the firstborn son in every household will perish, except for every household that takes a lamb and slaughters it and takes the blood of the lamb and paints it on the doorposts and the lintel of the house. Okay? That house will be passed over in the judgment because if you have the blood of the lamb on you, judgment can't touch you. Okay? But if you don't have the blood of the lamb on you, you will perish. The Lord says to Moses, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. So it happens. But judgment on Egypt means redemption for Israel. They go together. They go together, judgment and redemption. The Passover is kept. The houses covered by the blood of the lamb are saved. The sons of Egypt perish. And finally, Pharaoh says, go. Pharaoh says, go. And Israel is set free. So that's all kind of the run-up to the story of, of the sea, right, and the parting of the Red Sea. But there's an important hinge from the deliverance from Egypt through the Passover and then the deliverance at the Red Sea. There's this hinge in between, and it's, it's strange, and we need to reckon with it. It's God's wise setup of what happens at the sea. You see, God could have led Israel right from Egypt into Canaan, but he didn't. He actually intentionally led them to the sea. He intentionally led them to a place where they would be cornered. In Exodus chapter 14, at the beginning, the Lord says to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihacharot, between Migdol and the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. God actually intentionally brings Israel to a place where they are going to be absolutely terrified and think that they are all going to die. And he intentionally brings Pharaoh and his army to trap Israel between the Red Sea on one side and the, the superpowers elite fighting force on the other. Why? So that on the one hand, he can lure his enemy into one decisive battle and completely overthrow him. But on the other hand, so that precisely by bringing his people to a place where their backs are against the wall, they will see his glorious power to save and learn to trust in him and in him alone. And again, as the Lord says, so it happens. Exactly. Pharaoh changes his mind. He comes out with his elite fighting unit leading his entire army to recapture his slaves. How does Israel respond? <clears throat> Sheer 
terror. Just the way you would respond, right? Just the way I would respond. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. Behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. But this was not a cry of faith. This was a cry of embittered anger. And the people of Israel turn against Yahweh, and they turn against Moses. The very next verse, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? God doesn't really love us. He delivered us from from Egypt, but it was just so that he would kill us out here. He is a capricious, untrustworthy God. That's where our hearts go when we get pinned against the wall. God meets their fear and ingratitude and unbelief with another gracious promise. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. Yahweh will fight for you. Yahweh will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. And so it happens, right? The pillar of cloud moves and it comes as a shield between Israel and the Egyptians. And then the Lord commands Moses to stretch out his staff And he stretches out the staff, and by an act of awesome supernatural power, God parts the Red Sea in two. The waters are as, it's as walls of water on either side, and the bottom of the sea becomes solid and dry, and, you know, a million or so odd slaves walk across safely on dry ground to the other side of the sea. And in dramatic fashion then, the Lord moves the cloud, and the Egyptians go, hurrah, this is our chance, and they charge in after the Israelites, but the Lord fights against them. He he turns the, the dry ground into mud, and their wheels get clogged, and the Egyptians start to panic, and they say, oh no, the Lord is fighting against the Egyptians. And then the Lord tells Moses to hold back his staff again, and Moses takes his staff, and the waters collapse and cover over the entire army of Egypt. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. The people see what God does to save them, and then they respond with fear, meaning they stand in awe before the majesty of the Lord, and they acknowledge that he, in fact, is God. They respond with faith because they see that his majestic, invincible power was set forth for their deliverance, not to destroy them, but to save them. And so they respond in faith to the Lord. And then, then they turn to praise. Fear and faith give birth to praise because how can the heart not adore such a God as our 
God and give voice to the wonder and the love and the adoration that wells up in our hearts when we see what he has done for us. And that is why we have the Song of Moses, chapter 15. Also the Song of Miriam, as we heard at the end, right? Miriam, the prophetess, leading the women with the tambourines and things like that. All right, let's go into the song now. Let's look at the song. I want to look at just a few of the main, the main notes in the chord, I guess, so to speak, of Moses' deliverance song. I always get nervous about musical analogies, Jamie. I'm, I'm, I should check beforehand with you. All right, the first one. We sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. We sing to him because Yahweh is the divine warrior. That is the first and that is the great theme of the song. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Verse 6, your right hand, O Yahweh, glorious in power, your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. Verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. It is true, our God is gentle as a nursing mother with her child. Isaiah chapter 49, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, the Lord says. But he is also a warrior. God is a warrior. So same prophet, Isaiah 27, on that day, Yahweh with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Our God is a dragon-slaying God. Friends, do not settle for a one-dimensional God. Your heart needs his gentle love, his tender care, his compassion. Your heart also needs his boundless power and might engaged by promise to secure you from death and impelled, driven by the valor of his fearless love. Your heart needs a God who is a warrior. Again, Isaiah chapter 31, as a lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against that lion, the lion is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise, so the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on his holy hill. Now, when did he do that? When did the Lord of hosts come down like a lion to fight on Mount Zion and on his holy hill? And he was not daunted or terrified by all the shouting and the noise that was lifted up against him. Well, if you go to the New Testament, because I wouldn't want anyone to think that I'm just preaching Old Testament 
relics this morning. But if you go to the New Testament, you will hear St. John, who is the apostle of love, say that the reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy them. And you will hear Jesus, as he is going about Galilee, casting out demons everywhere that he goes, because you cannot understand Jesus or the reality of his kingdom without reckoning with the reality of the evil one and his kingdom. And there must be a conflict. There must be someone who is overthrown. And everywhere that Jesus goes, he is overthrowing the work of the evil one. And that is why prostitutes are receiving forgiveness of sins. And that is why poor people are being set free from oppression. And that is why the blind are having their eyes open. And that is why demons are being cast out. Because the kingdom of God is coming in this man. And people stop to ask Jesus about this. And people are beginning to be offended by Jesus. And Jesus says, let me ask you something. If there's a strong man and he has a whole bunch of goods inside of his house and someone else is going to come and try to rob that man, what's he going to have to do first? He's going to have to be stronger than that strong man and he's going to have to tie and bind him. And only if he ties and binds him will he be able to plunder his goods. And Jesus says, I am that stronger man because I am Yahweh, the divine warrior, and I have come down to fight on Mount Zion and on his holy hill. And I'm sorry, but I am just not scared of the evil one. And so he goes to the great battle of all, which is the cross. And he allows himself to be bound. And by allowing himself to be bound, he actually binds the evil one, hand and foot. And by death, he destroys the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's Hebrews chapter 2, but can you hear that it's also Exodus chapter 14 and chapter 15? Jesus is the one who fought for us and set us free from our bondage to the fear of death. And that is why when you go to Revelation chapter 1 and you see the glory of the Son of Man, his word to John and his word to us is, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and hell in my hand because I own them. I plundered the strong man's house. He belongs to me. And that is why when you go to Revelation chapter 5, and John again is weeping, because apparently John just fell apart a lot. Someone, I don't know who, some angel says, John, stop crying, stop crying, weep no more, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He has conquered. Jesus, Messiah, is a warrior. By his blood, he made us a kingdom. And by his spirit, 
He empowers us to be holy warriors of truth and love, of grace and courage, and in the power of the Holy Spirit to destroy strongholds and to set people free from the power of Satan and bring them to God through the gospel. And it is true, as we go about doing this, we experience trouble. But again, the promise of our lion-hearted God is, take heart because I have conquered the world. The Lord Jesus Christ is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Second theme of the song, we sing to Yahweh, the God of my fathers. Verse 2, this is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. My father's God, that harkens back to the story of the bush. Exodus chapter 3, the Lord spoke to Moses from the bush and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is not just identifying or or verifying that the God speaking from the bush is identical to the God who spoke to the patriarchs in Genesis. It is doing that, but it's doing more. It's invoking the promise that God made to the fathers and the covenant that he entered into with them and with their offspring by means of that promise. You go back to Exodus chapter 2, Moses has fled the scene with his tail between his legs, but God has not fled the scene. God is with his people in Egypt, and the people of Israel cried out to God for help, and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to him, and God heard their groaning, and listen to this, God remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac, and with Jacob. He remembered his covenant. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Contrary to all appearances, God had not abandoned his people. God had not broken his covenant. God had not forgotten his promise. And in particular, the promise all the way back to Genesis 15 that he would deliver Abraham's children from slavery after 400 years of affliction. Not a moment too late, God kept his promise and he freed the slaves. And that's why if you skip ahead to verse 13, Moses celebrates the hesed of God, the steadfast love of God, the loyal love of God, the covenant of God love of God. It is because of the covenant love that God has for his people that he led them out of Egypt. God has given us his promise. God has promised us forgiveness of sins and eternal life in Jesus Christ. We may suffer long as we wait for God to keep his promise. We may experience year upon year of affliction, trouble, and bitter sorrow, but God will sooner cease to exist than allow a single letter of his word to fall to the ground. 
when you are still in Egypt, when you are stuck with the sea on one side and the Egyptian army on the other with your back pressed up against the wall, learn to stake everything on the promise of God. Learn even then to praise him in hope. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And when at last God parts the waters before you, but casts your enemies into the sea, then sing to the Lord. Sing to the God of our fathers, the God of the covenant, the God of the promise. Next note, sing to the Lord the incomparable God. Incomparable? Incomparable? Who knows? Verse 11, who is like you, O Yahweh? Who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds and doing wonders? Well, he asked my sister Hannah for the answer, and in 1 Samuel chapter 2, she answers, there is none holy like Yahweh, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. None. To see the mighty works of God, to see him raise up Israel from Egypt, to see him raise up his son from the dead, is to be caught up in the spirit to catch a little glimpse, just a glimpse, of the glory of the Lord. He works Wonders, And as he works them, he shows something of his wonder-working power and might and splendor and beauty and glory. He pulls off the impossible and he dazzles our heart's eyes by the display of his greatness. He is the Holy One. There is none like him. You notice in verse 11 that this is very much at the expense of the other gods. The gods of the nations are all run-of-the-mill, dull, boring, lifeless, and unable to give life. The gods are nothing but the primal drives of our fallen nature, objectified and deified, our desires for sex and power and money, and influence, and immortality masquerading now as Ra, now as Baal, now as Moloch, now as actors, or athletes, or any number of American idols. You can pick your favorite one. It is all so ho-hum. It is all so terribly unimpressive to the man or woman or child who is a saint of God standing by the shore of the Red Sea or at the foot of the cross of God's own son or with Mary at the empty tomb on Easter morning. What good is a career that cannot save you from death? What good is pleasure that leaves you empty and addicted and bound by the longing for more and more and more and bigger and faster and stronger? What good is status or influence or following on social media if oblivion swallows up 
your 15 minutes of fame as the sea swallowed the hosts of Pharaoh, who everyone thought was a great king. And friend, it will, utter oblivion, utter oblivion, will swallow you up. But Yahweh, there is none like him. He is the God who is and is great and is alive and is full of life and joy and glory. He is so infinitely beautiful that the soul that sees just a glimpse of him cannot help but desire to possess him entirely. And he is so infinitely holy that angels, angels shield their eyes in the presence of his glory. And he is so infinitely dreadful in judgment that the foundations of the earth tremble when he rends the heavens and comes down. And he is so infinitely merciful and compassionate and tender and kind that a child-hearted soul, however old you are, a child-hearted person runs straight into his arms of love. There is no one like him. And consistently in scripture, whether it's an angel or a man, if you see him, you simply stutter like the seraphim, simple confessions like holy, holy, holy. Or there is no God like our God. Or worthy is the lamb who is slain. Or salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. And our words are not up to the task of praising him because he is utterly beyond measure. But our hearts must praise him. Our hearts must declare something of his glory. And that is what Moses is doing here on the shore of the Red Sea. And that is what you, my friend, you, if you are a child of God, you have done this. On the shore of any number of Red Seas, the Lord has led you across. Here's the thing. As we praise this true and living and incomparable God, as we worship the one we were made for, as we give our hearts to the love that gave himself for us and bled himself dry for us, we come alive we become true. We become what we worship. You become what you love. Not incomparable. Okay. You're not going to become incomparable because there is none like him. But if you worship the incomparable God, you will become the kind of truly living man or woman of whom the world is not worthy, as it says in Hebrews chapter 11. Worship the gods and they will suck the life right out of you. Worship Yahweh and you will actually become a divine human. Not God, we never become God, but according to St. Peter, we actually partake in the divine nature as we glorify God and enjoy him now and forever. 
His infinite holiness will not consume you like stubble, but refine you as gold or silver tested by fire. Refine you that you may partake of his holy fire. Refine you that you may move further up and further in into the heights of his holy mountain. That brings us to the last note of the song at the end of the sermon. Moses sings to Yahweh, the God of future grace. By the end of Exodus 15, Israel has a long, long way to go. They have yet to arrive in the land of promise, but they have seen the mighty works of the Lord in their behalf, and they have the promise that God will bring to completion what he has begun. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. This is a promise that God will preserve his church no matter what. To be sure, there is the wilderness, great and terrifying, as it often is. But the purpose of God in redemption is nothing less than to lead us into his presence, his mountain, his place, his home, his sanctuary. The conquest of Canaan and the building of the temple on Mount Zion all took place in fulfillment of this promise. Again, just as the Lord speaks, so it happens always. But make no mistake, all of that, all of this was also a prophecy, a type. They pointed beyond themselves to the reality that is ours in Jesus Christ. God will bring us to his holy mountain. Yes, there is the wilderness of this life. There is COVID-19. There is job loss, friend loss, marriage loss. There is depression, fear, crippling anxiety. There is sickness, suffering, and death. There is the sin that clings so closely. There is the world that does all it can to lure us away from a sincere devotion to Jesus Christ, or else threatens to punish us if we refuse its charms. On top of everything else, there is that Pharaoh of Pharaohs, the ancient serpent, the dragon, the devil. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If God is for us, who can be against us? We have his promise. He will bring us into the land of the living. He will plant us on his holy mountain. He will bring us into his home, and he will make us glad forever with the joy of his presence. If you are depressed and you're listening to this right now, hear this promise. Your future is eternal joy 
in Jesus Christ. He will wipe away every tear from your eye. Nothing can stop us because nothing can stop God. He cast Pharaoh into the sea. He put death to death by the death of his son. He is with us by his spirit and he will not leave us until he has done all that he has promised us. Let us sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, let's sing the song. So I'd ask you please to stand.